Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. Hello and welcome to our latest Askell Leadership Podcast. And if you're new to this, uh, essentially during my travels, I try to talk to different people. Some of them are trust leaders and head teachers, assistant heads, deputies, business leaders, all the kinds of people responsible for our schools, for our academies in the independent sector, as well as the state sector across the UK. But also I talk to policymakers, people who run some of the big institutions of state, people who bring interesting insights from research and all of it. Each month we try to make an interesting compilation of different voices talking about different issues and this time uh, we're doing exactly that we've got Corrine Mitchell who is the principal of Croydon College talking about uh, the funding crisis in further education you've got our director of policy Julie McCulloch talking in particular about the Askell emphasis on equalities diversity and inclusion this year both within our organisation within council but also what we're aiming to do across the education system. Uh, James Pope, many of you will know, is a former head teacher, best known from the BBC's uh, school programme, talking about life beyond headship, the need to build support networks for head teachers who lose their jobs. There's Nikki Hutchinson from St George's Academy in Birmingham talking about alternative provision and some really practical things they're doing to try and reduce the risk of knife crime uh, for those young people that they serve. Next, you hear from Toby Greeny, Professor of Education at the University of Nottingham, who has done some interesting work stepping back and having a look at what is it that makes trusts work particularly in terms of school improvement. What are the lessons that we can learn as we start to look across a fledgling system that's just starting to mature? And finally, we go back to our Forgotten Third initiative, those students, and there's something like 190,000 of them this year who got a three, a two or a one in English and in maths, what does that feel like in the English system where you don't get the four that is deemed to be a standard pass, you get a three instead? What's that saying about our system? Well, you hear from some of the young people about the consequences of that, as well as our president, Rachel Warwick, reflecting upon it. Hope you enjoy it. I'm Katie Mitchell, our principal and CEO of Croydon College. And just tell us a bit about the college. What's the, what's the context for that? Uh, there's two college campuses. We've got... Uh, Croydon College was General Further Education College Centre Croydon and Coulsdon Sixth Form College who joined us in February um, they joined us in February following um, financial hardship um, and so they needed a partner to come and work with Very good, and how many learners are we talking about and what kind of courses? Um, at Croydon campus we've got 1,500 16-18 year olds uh, 4,000 adults, about 350 higher education students and uh, 400 apprentices and at Coulston Sick Farm College, we've got about 1,016 teaching aids. Now, back at the beginning of term time, we had an announcement from the government about 14 billion more money, which quickly we realise isn't 14 billion, it's 7 billion for three years, largely for the school sector. Then there came an announcement about the FE sector, which was very different. A, it was much less, B, it was only for one year. And yet we know that the level of cuts that have to be sustained by FE are considerable. Can you just give us the flavour of some of the decisions you have to make in your college? Okay, so the extra income we'll get for that is about £188 per 16- and 17-year-old and about £155 for 18-year-olds, which doesn't nearly cover even years inflation, I suspect, um, when we've been on a flat rate of funding since 2013. So 
um, six years of uh, no increase in funding at a time when every other cost around us, not least our staff and our pensions, has gone um, up remarkably. Um, so the type of things that we are having to do is uh, just cut all our services back within the college until um, you know we're basically doing uh, teaching qualifications. So as I was, I was talking earlier about the fact that we're now teaching qualifications, we're not necessarily providing an education, it's not a rounded education. Um, this country, uh, students are a standard at 16 to 18 now studying about 13 to 15 hours a week. Um, that's uh, so much less than comparisons um, across Europe and, and indeed internationally. And of course within that we are now unable to provide some of those enrichment activities which we could 10 years ago, um, sports, clubs, um, clubs generally, um, more mental health support, more counselling support for students has now retrenched to basic safeguarding of students and teaching to qualifications. Um, for adults, it means that we have had a 45% cut in funding um, and we are, um, we're now in a position where we're delivering a lot of English, maths, um, ESOL, English for speakers of other languages, um, but demand for level 3 and level 2 qualifications has fallen um, as people who are in work now have to contribute towards those and just can't afford the £1,500 to £3,000 that that would cost them in tuition fees when their household incomes are so low. It's very bleak that. Just two, two more questions. One, one of the things which came through with the panel and always comes up is why is it that the FE sector can, can feel kind of in debates to be so marginal? And part of the reason is that people, that if they haven't themselves experienced it, which lots of our MPs, for example, haven't, then it doesn't get talked about. Just from your point of view, working in FE, what is it that is so special and distinctive when FE is working on behalf of young people and indeed adults? Um, I think one of the things I would talk a bit about within that is, uh, is the great joy of our access to higher education uh, graduation events in the, uh, that we have every year in the summer term. Um, and we have maybe about, it's about 400 students, usually female, because they have found a way of balancing, taking that loan out, balancing benefits and income against that. Um, and usually from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. And um, this is them usually returning to education because they... Uh, their children um, they, they're thinking about their children growing up they want a the better life for them they want a better life for their family and um, it's that sense of massive achievement as they've got through a really tough year they've done um, the equivalent of A-levels within one year and they're going on to university and I can't think of a better celebration it's, um, it's usually held um, in the, even in the mornings and they all arrive in, uh, in fantastic celebratory outfits and um, yeah it's, it's the proudest point of um, being a college leader I think. That's very inspiring yeah. Uh, last question I asked a question here on behalf of the forgotten third that is those third of young people who get a grade three in English and indeed in maths after 12 years and then they'll come to colleges like yours where if they've got a grade three they have to do the compulsory reset. It's a tricky issue isn't it because we don't want to say that they're not entitled to do that but what, what does it look like on the ground for you um, with those resets? 
Um, you know, I, 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 I kind of spoke about before. Um, you know, I feel very strongly that um, continuing English and maths for young people is a, a really important thing. And, and in fact, I would probably continue it beyond GCSEs for those that got it if, if we had the funding to do so, which, which we don't. Um, but I'm not convinced about GCSEs. Um, I'm not convinced that forcing someone to go year and year and year and do a qualification which they've failed in before is the right thing. Um, I think it's got to be about choice. Um, we know that there are occasions like the learner we had this year who had on their fourth attempt at their maths GCSE was so delighted to have passed it and it felt like a big achievement for us all that uh, she'd finally got through. Um, but it's got to be about you know being sensible about uh, that balance between forcing people to take it um, and giving them an option to. Um, and so, you know, yes, for English and maths all the way, I think people should be studying it. But should it be GCSE, I'm not convinced. Kelly Mitchell, thank you very much. I'm Julie McCulloch, Director of Policy at ASCL. Now, our new president, Rachel Warwick, and you uh, are working on her theme of the presidential year, which I suspect is going to go way beyond a year because it's, it's going to recalibrate certainly our organisation, but we're hoping it's going to resonate more broadly, which sounds very grand. But let's talk about it. It's the Quality, Diversity, Inclusion agenda. Could you give us a, a flavour of what, what we're trying to do there and the steps we're taking? So what Rachel and I, with many others, input from many others, are trying to do is to think about, at the moment, if you look at school and college leadership, it is not the most diverse of professions, it's not the most equal of professions. What role can ASCL, working with others, do to address that? What changes can we help to make? We're, in the first instance, we're focusing on three protected characteristics. So we're focusing on sex, we're focusing on race and on uh, sexual orientation. Uh, we want to look at other characteristics in the future, but we, we felt that was the, the right place to start. And so we have, we've, we've held a couple of round tables, one with staff, one with external um, stakeholders to look at what are the barriers for people from those three groups uh, to make it into school and college leadership. Why do we have so few black head teachers, for example? Why is there still a, a glass ceiling um, to far too great an extent for women in leadership? So we're, we're looking at that. Uh, what we want to do is to come out, you know, it's very easy to talk about this stuff. What we want to do is to produce some, some resources, some guidance to help school leaders to think about how they approach these subjects in their own institutions and what they might do. So we're focusing on three areas. We're looking at our influence across the system as an organisation, exactly what I've, what I've just said there, I guess, what we can help school leaders to do. But we're also shining a light on ourselves as an organisation. You know, we recognise that we have made some strides over the last few years on this, but there's a lot more that we as an organisation can do. So we're looking at ASCAL as an employer. What can we do in terms of recruitment, developing our own staff? What should we do better there? And we're also looking at ASCAL Council, which is... As many people will know, ASCAL Council is our, essentially our governing body, our policy-making body, and it is not as diverse as it should be at the moment. So we're looking at what changes we might be able to introduce you know, from, the, uh, from the radical to the, the, the kind of the smaller things that, that might still make a difference. So those three areas, ASCAL Council, ASCAL as an employer, and our influence across the system. And some people uh, might be listening to that uh, like I am thinking, well, here I am, a white, middle-aged, middle-class man... I'm part of the problem then, am I? What, what would you say to people like us? I think what's really important is that everybody recognises they have a role to play here. So actually, if, you know, as 
a white middle class man, actually you're in a great position, particularly the role you're in, to be hugely influential here. There's a, a term that I learnt recently called intentional allyship, which is basically saying I may not undergo this particular form of discrimination myself, but I want to help people who do. And I think what's been really heartening as we've been talking to people over the last few months about this is the, the interest and enthusiasm we've had, not just from people within those protected characteristics, but from everybody across the organisation and beyond who recognise, frankly, we have a problem here and that they want to help do something about it. Julie McCulloch, thank you. James Pope, uh, Director of Inspired Educate and Exec Leader at Whole Education, formerly head teacher of Marwood School, um, which featured in BBC Two School series. Yes, you'll be well known from that, James. Tell Just tell us the further backstory though you know how, how did you get to become head teacher there um oh, that's a, that's a long story um so uh, never um not, not a long-term sort of teaching careerist it wasn't a long-term ambition of mine fell into teaching like lots of people do uh, didn't quite know what to do post degree loved teaching loved working in schools as soon as i did it first time i stepped into schools very quickly realized that i wanted to be a leader in a school worked for a really inspiring head teacher um, who promoted me a lot, um, and um, you know, from a very early stage of my career, I wanted to be a head. I wanted to run my own school. I wanted to be a distributive leader. I wanted to get the culture right amongst the children. I wanted um, kids to love coming to school and to do really, really well. Uh, I applied for I think it was like six headships and didn't get them. Uh, and then I got the job at Marwood in two thousand and fourteen. And Marwood is in a rural community, I mean, quite a distinctive community, isn't it? Yeah, small uh, local authority. Um, there's only 20-odd secondary schools in the local authority. Um, used to be part of a much bigger authority in um, Avon and Somerset. And, um, you know, has been, it's been very, historically very poorly funded um, because of its context, because of its demographics. It's been sort of bottom bottom three local authority funding league tables for most of the last two decades. Uh, Fair funding moved it to the bottom of the league tables. Um, You know, so sort of long history of underinvestment in the schools in that local authority. And so you get your headship at Marwood. What do you, what kind of things are you doing there? Because you're very interested in culture as well as, as well as teaching and learning. Yeah, so, you know, I, my passion is for getting the culture right amongst the children. Teaching and learning is important, um, but ultimately if you haven't got children who are receptive to the notion of learning and feel passionate about it. So did a lot of work in the first two and a half years I was there, building that culture of aspiration, doing a lot of work with other local schools, local businesses, raising the aspiration, getting parents on board, getting the community on board. I feel really passionately about schools being an absolute hub in their community. I think it's too easy for secondary schools to become isolated from their communities. I did a lot of work around that. Um, whilst also saving uh, because the school demographic was shifting and had been for years but there's little action had been taken so in the first two and a half years of being there I had to save £2.8 million from a £5.4 million budget. I mean, it's eye-watering though. Yeah. Eye-watering. Um, and it was, you know, that was... Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it was a difficult time. Um, the staff were amazing. Um, but, but we managed all of those savings without redundancies. We managed all of those savings, you know, I think through ethical behaviours and being kind to people, um, taking opportunities as they arose, as, you know, as they happened to save the money, being creative about that. 
um, you know, sabbaticals, secondments. Um, you know, we took we took advantage of, of all of that sort of stuff to downsize the staff in a humane way. Um, you know, as 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 far as it's possible to save that amount of money, you know, we achieved it. We didn't always get it right every year. We didn't always hit our budget targets every year. So a deficit did build up, but you know, on the whole, we did it. And in the eyes of the community, we also improved the quality of the teaching and learning. And we changed the we started to change the culture of the school. Two and a half years, I think cultural shift takes a long time. But you know, I was really pleased with the progress that we we're making. Um, what we didn't have is a you know the high quality data outcomes that you would want to have but you know two and a half years three years of data um not disastrous data um it was never below the floor but you know progress eight was always an issue for us um partly about you know very high attainment on entry primary schools in local area did an absolutely fantastic job um by those children and we'd identified that there was an absolute dip in key stage three so we ripped apart our key stage three curriculum we made it much more enticing and aspirational um because that's my passion that's what i believe in um and i knew that we needed to deal with the long-term issues rather than invest massive amounts of time in short-term tactics in year 11 to improve data we did that as well but we focused energy in key stage three and uh, to get the progress right in the longer term um but, you know, ch- children's aspiration was a real issue for us. Um, you know, most of our, what's, what's interesting as, a, as an outcomes measure for schools is, is Progress 8, um, you know, told a certain story. Uh, a different story and a different way of measuring the, the success of what we did with the, the sort of next steps, education, employment, um, apprenticeships that our children went on to do with, the, you know, the vast majority of every cohort achieved the thing that they needed to do. And that was a barrier for us because um, you know, a lot of our children were very high attainment on entry, which means that we needed them to be getting A's and A stars in order to achieve a, a good Progress 8 score. Uh, we were teaching to that quality because children were getting A's and A stars, but not enough of them. Um, and those children, you know, we worked with quite hard. Um, I'm, I'm smiling at that, but you know, we worked, we put a lot of effort into them, but ultimately they needed B grades to get onto the A-level courses they were doing, and they were happy with B grades. Um, they weren't massively interested in our Progress A score as a school, um, unsurprisingly. So we had this sort of funny, you know, year on year we had this funny mix of the vast majority of children achieving the results they needed to do what they needed to do next. Um, but Progress 8 scores that weren't hitting the sort of numbers that we, we really wanted them to or needed them to. Um, you know, but that was you know, low aspiration in, in lots of the communities in, in South Gloucestershire that, you know, reflected off the back of sort of decades of work. Um, and we knew that was a long-term, you know, that was a long-term investment to get that change, to get that cultural shift was going to take time. I thought I had time. Um, I didn't have time. So you had two and a half years. Yeah. Then you dis- disappear. Now, from, from, from those of us watching that, seeing, seeing someone who had been working with such a sense, I think, of pride and dignity, you then disappear. A combination of funding, a low aspiration kind of cultural issues... Uh, and finances, yeah. all of that, pretty punitive. And then, of course, it's on TV. So you, it must have felt particularly brutal for you and traumatising, didn't it? Yeah, it was a, I mean, it's an, interesting, it's an interesting story because, you know, we signed, the T, we signed up to make the TV programme to, to highlight the issues of funding and, you know, the complexity of school improvements in, in an area of, you know, underfunding and, um, you know, broader underinvestment over a long period of time. And, um, you know, we signed up to do it 
uh, we'd literally signed the papers and then a week and a half later Marwood got offsteaded. And the story for Marwood was going to be, despite all of the challenges, despite all of the funding, actually this is a school which is really moving forward. The community with a massive sense of buy-in from the community and you know the broader parents, children, businesses, you know, for all intents and purposes, everybody, you know, the vast majority, it's never going to be everybody, but the vast majority of people could see the journey that the school was on and could see the improvements. Ofsted came, uh, reached a different conclusion to that. Um, and what the TV cameras then captured was a year of me dealing with the fallout from that. Um, you know, which included, interestingly, for somebody who is very passionate about culture, it included me watching the cultural gains that we'd made over a, a sort of two and a half, three year investment of, you know, real hard work and determination disintegrate in the space of literally weeks as children started to wear the, the cloak of inadequacy that they'd been labelled with. Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, incredibly telling. I remember, remember watching it. So let's just reflect on that because people would listen to that who might have been thinking, oh, I'll become a head one day with the passion that you had to become a head and think maybe I shouldn't. And you're not saying don't become a head. You're saying, hey, we do have to do something about the crushing weight of accountability, so we know that. But also maybe there are things that people going into headship need to know in order to help them to be able to do that job and stay longer term to do the job. Just talk us through that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's it's... Most people who end up in headship have got a very specific, very particular skill set that's been honed over quite a long period of time. Um, and I think, you know, we're, we're very fixated with developing that skill set. I think my, my passionate view is there is another element that perhaps we're not investing in, in the same level. Um, and there's a, couple of, there's a couple of aspects of that. First of all, the sort of, you know, the portrayal of head teachers continues to be, you know, of superheroes leading organisations and communities. Yeah. Turning round. Turning round, transformation. And, and um, where that happens, I'm not being negative about it because in some cases it is spectacular and it is amazing. Um, and I think we should be rightly proud of that where it happens in the system. But I think what we need to stop doing is assuming that if it happens in that place, it can happen everywhere else as well. Um, I think we need to reach a point as a community of head teachers where we accept that it's okay to be vulnerable and not to be good at everything. That's a really, really difficult balance to get right. Um, but I think in accepting that vulnerability, that we can then focus on providing the, say, the, the correct support, which I think is nobody becomes ahead without a massive personal investment alongside the professional investment they're making. It becomes very much about you and your community. Um, you know, your community, your school is a reflection of you as an individual. Your vision, your values, your principles, everything that makes you you becomes embodied in that school. And my feeling is we used to have a system where people were given, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years for that to really take hold. It doesn't feel like that anymore. And I think therefore being the case, we need head teachers to be receiving the right personal and professional support to enable them to deal with the stresses and the pressures, to be honest and transparent about what they are without fear of accountability, without the edge of an accountability conversation. Um, I had lots of people who were supporting me and they were all universally lovely, incredibly skilled people and people I continue to call friends. However, there was, in, in the various roles that they all had, as my chair of governors, as the chair of the board, as the CEO, as fellow head teachers, Ultimately, they all had a broader accountability 
within the system that we have. And what I'm advocating is that we have a system where head teachers can share their vulnerabilities and their professional and personal stresses and pressures without there being an accountability edge. Um, and they can be coached in methodologies to help them deal with that, to approach it with a positive mindset, using positive psychology tools, but knowing that there is somebody that they can talk to in a non-threatening way and have a conversation about the difficulties and complexities of the, the school that they're running and the issues that they're facing and the thing that keeps them up at night. And that isn't necessarily saying that everyone who becomes a head needs to, to be assigned a coach necessarily. I mean, that might be appropriate. But you're actually saying something which in an atomised system is more about how do we create a network of people who irrespective of the fact that, of course, there will be some levels of competition in communities, yeah. you know, some of that. And it would be nice to think that quite a lot of that could actually ultimately be quite superficial competition. You know, that I'm checking your website, you're checking my website. But underneath there is a greater sense of us working collectively and just just articulate that because you you explained that to me earlier yeah i think um it's very easy and this is this is a sort of construct of the system that we've got but if you need support most of that support comes around a particular school-based problem um so you pick up the phone and there's an issue with you know your year nine behavior um and somebody on the you've got somebody you can talk to on the other end of the phone who will talk to you about year nine behavior and what they did in their school with the greatest of respect to those people, your school is your context, and we know from painful past history that you know lifting a strategy out of another school without all of the things that have embedded that strategy and dropping it into another one don't work. Um, and actually, I'm a great believer in the skill set and the experience that head teachers have, so I think the answers lie within. And my feeling is that a you know a really um, um, training head teacher peer groups up so that they can properly support each other without offering skills-based advice about how to solve a problem, but listening, properly listening, and helping somebody get to the solution that probably already exists inside that person already, um, I think is a much more powerful and effective way of supporting our leaders. I think there is too much support in the system at the moment, which is, you know, involves sitting around a table, looking at the problems, looking at it really pejoratively, um, and then saying we'll solve this by doing this, this and this. Um, if it were that simple, it would be working, and it's not. And it hasn't been working for a while. So perhaps it's not that simple, and perhaps we therefore need to take a different view of it. And you've been working with head teacher groups, you've been working with trust, but you've also been working with other professions on this, haven't you? Yep, so we do some work in other high-pressure um, public services, funnily enough, uh, predominantly. So we work with the police, um, doing something similar uh, with them because they have the same pressures and very little support. We're also working with the NHS, um, looking at um, embedding this coaching model. And uh, you know, I think what's unique about it, it, it is it's it's actually training people how to coach each other really, really effectively mm. without the requirement for you know a very highly trained executive coach being present. Um, and we use positive psychology tools to do it. Um, those positive psychology tools can be self-applied. They don't have to be applied by a coach. Once you've got them, you've got them. Um, and it's incredibly powerful. You know, when we do it in schools, when we do it with the police, when we do it um, with, with various other people who come and join us on our sessions, um, the, the impact is really quite amazing. James Pope, thank you. Thank you so much. Great. Nikki Hutchison, Executive Head Teacher of Titan Education Trust.
And tell us a bit about the trust. Uh, how many schools? What type? Where are you? We're a small. We're a small um, trust that's just uh, started up last November. To be honest, um, it originally opened up as a one alternative free school. Believe it or not, um, but now we're linked to a. So what alternative provision? Yeah. yeah. And oh yeah, sorry. Alternative provision free school. Uh, seven years ago, we've had two very good Ofsted. Uh, reports have just recently been studied again and they're basically it's an in-betweeny it's not a normal alternative they run like mainstream schools but on a smaller scale so the kids get the same life chances as getting mainstream and so now you've expanded so there's this trust yeah. so are you saying they're all alternative provision or at the moment we've got two alternative provisions but we've got 12 partnership mainstream schools that are linked within us so that we're all together so there's 12 mainstreams and two um alternative provision schools. Yeah, well, it's interesting because the whole direction of travel, I think, is to say that alternative provision too often has felt like it was on the margins, mm. unnoticed, even though we know that actually alternative provision in Ofsted terms does, has done very well traditionally, yeah. but, it, but hasn't been on the radar of those of us working in perhaps in the kind of you know, mm. mainstream schools, so that's yeah. interesting. And you're in Birmingham? Yeah. So um, tell, us about, yeah tell us a bit about the catchment. Um, it's a highly vulnerable um, catchment area which is in the middle of the city centre high crime rate high knife gang crime so a lot of our youngsters unfortunately are mixed up in high gang and knife crime and that's what got me interested actually because i listened to you just talking earlier on nikki to david laws actually talking about something you're doing to try and take a kind of uh, preemptive yeah. view of knife crime can you tell us what you've been doing um, there's two, two studies that we've actually done, two projects that we've done that we've rounded the data up to this, at the end of this summer and it's over 120 students we followed and what we basically did, we started off with using our people premium money and we f- paid for every child to have a sports pass to any sporting facility they wanted to use within their local amenities. They didn't have to cross postcodes, didn't have to get the brush, it's local within their area. So what that enticed that meant, during the PE lessons, we, inter- we implemented it, they go to the sports centre, to their individual sports centre, they sign up, we pay for it all, they sign up to their clubs. Then after school, it means instead of going to meet that gang on the corner, I'm now going to meet my coach at judo, or I'm going to my swim lesson, or I'm going to aerobics, or some of the fellows I'm going to work on my pecs. It's (laughs) (laughs) quite right, too. And what's the impact of that being? The impact of that was those 120 kids. They were. We're talking about these students were hardcore gang members and now they're not. They're involved in level two, level three courses, apprenticeships or further education they're doing, but none of them are involved and have not been involved with the police since embarking on this. So It's, it's an amazing story for something which so often is presented as beyond anyone's control, you know, something we can't get to grips yeah. with. That notion that what you're giving is an alternative pur- purpose to those young people, tapping into something they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. No, and the, the, the trick is, when I was at doing PE, when I was at school, it was Key Stage 4, you were given, the Key Stage 4 PE used to work in sports centres. So you used to travel off to the sports centres and your PE teachers, and that's where, so that's where the idea came from. So it's nothing, it's not reinventing the wheel or anything. Toby Greeny, I am a Professor of Education at the University of Nottingham. And you've done uh, a big piece of research which is essentially shining a spotlight onto this emerging system that we've got a multi-academy trust and in particular looked at some of the lessons we can learn about school improvement. Are you able just to talk about some of that? 
Yeah, certainly. So it's all available on the department's website. It's called uh, Sustainable Improvement in Multi-School Groups. We did a number of things. We uh, The core of it was 31 case studies of mostly multi-academy trusts, but also some teaching school alliances, federations and local authorities, and then a national survey and some other things. Um, as you say, we were focused on the school sustainable improvement. Um, I was really interested in some of the questions such as to what extent is it a good idea for trust leaders to be trying to standardise or align their practice across the group of schools? What are the differences between small and large trusts in terms of how they work and how they try and work at scale? Um, and so on and so forth. I'd say it's hard to give headlines in a very <laughs> short uh, in- yeah. section, but you know, I think the headline, I think what I would say is that there isn't one way to run a mat. Uh, but that in some of the particularly medium and large trusts that uh, I felt were really impressive, A, there was a really clear sense of purpose. Um, They they understood what they were trying to do and they understood what they stood for and and why that was important. B, there was a strong focus on participation. So they really thought hard about how to make sure that different stakeholders had a voice in decision-making, that there was a strong ownership of how decisions get made, that there was a transparency to that. C, they were focused on performance and that was about performance for staff as well as students and they thought really hard about how to create pathways for staff to develop and grow and learn from each other and D they had really good processes and one of the processes I would pick out is particularly what we call in the report enabling routines which is about having some a small number of things that you do consistently across all your schools and across your your group for example it might be lesson study it might be peer review but by because they're quite tightly prescribed in terms of how they work but quite open in terms of how they're applied across different schools and different contexts they don't need to become a straight jacket they become a vehicle for shared learning and debate beautifully done you've you've talked about this before um just let me just make um one, one final comment about it and so we one thing you said uh is uh vision is important but values trumps vision, essentially. That was one thing. And secondly, performance is important, but performance shouldn't be narrowly defined. See if I've got that right and comment on on those two things for me. Uh, So, yes, that's a very good articulation of what I think I'm saying. Um, I think not just... Well, I think values trumps vision because values are much more enduring and can guide our decision-making day in, day out in a way that vision can feel a bit far off and kind of uh, easy to put aside until next week. Values are about integrity and kind of being able to make tough decisions but which stay true to a set of values and don't, even if it's unpopular, I think people respect that a lot more if they can understand where you're coming from. But that's not to say vision isn't important. I think it's important that everyone has a shared sense of where they're trying to get to. Um, I just think we sometimes overemphasise its importance in the leadership literature and and when we think about leadership. On performance, yeah, absolutely. I think um, some of the trusts we visited had arguably a quite narrow version of what they were about. We get good Ofsteds, we get improved exam results. And I think, you know, that's important. I'm not decrying the focus on 
children getting good outcomes that are measurable in terms of exams. But I think if that's the only thing you're about, and if you don't have a broader vision of learning which unites you and which motivates your staff to think this is the kind of young people that we're trying to develop, the kinds of ways that we think about improvement, uh, then it can become a straitjacket and, and lead to some unfortunate outcomes. And Toby, finally, I think I said that was finally, but this is definitely finally. <laughs> you, you've, um, b- both through your work in universities, also your work with the National College, seen systems change and emerge and so on. We've seen the uh, move in England, at least, away from local authorities to multi-academy trusts and other forms of partnership. Do you, um, here in October 2019, find yourself optimistic about the direction of travel of English education? I would say I do a lot of work in England, but I also have the privilege of doing a lot of things internationally. And one of the things I notice is that I think there's a rigour to the work and thinking of leaders and teachers here in England, which I don't often see elsewhere. I think we're very focused on how to ensure that every child is making progress in a way that sometimes in some very shiny examples overseas, the impression I've had is that that's less true, that some children are making very good progress, but not all. So I think many things about our system are very strong. I think we're much stronger on evidence-informed practice than almost anywhere else in the world. So there's lots that I think we can build on. I think we have many examples of some really impressive school partnerships, sometimes Matt but also you know, other collaborative formats um, which are able to do things quicker, easier, better than any kind of structure that, you know, whether it's local authority or anything else. So I think that can be a real strength. But what I've said in my other research, particularly the Hierarchy Markets Network study, is that we have quite a fragmented system. I think we've lost too much the sense of a locality uh, I do quite a bit of work at the moment in localities, trying to bring trusts, local authority, maintain schools back together to think what do we need to do together, um, even if we accept that we're also going to work in our own subgroups. So I think there are some quite big challenges in the system that we're not paying enough attention to, whilst also saying we're some good at some really difficult things, which gives us a good platform to build from. Professor Toby Greeny, thank you. Uh, uh, my name is Brian Cohen. Uh, Ethan Sion. Um, Andre Bejnaru. So um, tell, tell, tell us about the results day when you look back at how, how did you do in English and maths? Um, results day was, I was quite disappointed. Uh, I wasn't expecting to, to not pass certain GCSEs. Um, obviously I didn't get five GCSEs, the requirement to get into A-levels to study them. But um, I, I put my head up and uh, started uh, learning about it, obviously more, and then um, I passed in the end. I've got grade four in English language, and now I'm studying A levels. Um, and that might, just the last question, which one of you might just want to answer: uh, When we talk about a standard pass as being a four, and you get a three, what 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 did you think on the day? I think you you said something earlier on about that grade doesn't define me or that didn't represent me. Can you just ex- explain that? Um, I feel as if um, just right. So say if. Um, in employers looking at your grades, they're only looking at the number. They're, n- they're not looking at how the eff- no no one sees the efforts that go behind or when you how hard you're trying in an exam. It's just at the end of the day, it's just a a number on a sheet, right? So I, I feel for someone that in a lower set trying the absolute hardest and only coming out with a three, but that's their hardest. It's not shown. Whereas someone with ease can get a nine. That's that's just oh wow, you got a nine. 
But yeah, that's that's how I think. I, uh, I quite think it tests our memory, not our intelligence. When we go through GCSEs, that's what that's what my uh, that's what I think. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Finally, Rachel Warwick, our president and also a commission member. Why does this commission matter so much, do you think? Well, I think the boys have expressed it really well. Um, that sense of a cliff edge. If you don't get the grade four, just what that means in terms of the barrier that is to your next steps and how that doesn't reflect either you know, these young men as great young men, their work ethic, everything they're capable of, their character, and clearly young men who are going to have fantastic futures. So why do we embrace a system which does this to young people at, at the age of 16? It just seems crazy. The Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton.